You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Uh, I've got a really special guest this week. I have Matt O'Donnell of the Vivarium at the University of Manchester. And I, I, I always love doing international interviews, and I've got him coming straight to us from the U.K., and we're going to talk a lot about uh, what's going on with the Vivarium at the University of Manchester, Matthew's career, some of the stuff that he's working on, and much more. So I'm really looking forward to get into it. But of course, before that, I want to give everyone the usual due and proper thank yous. Uh, thanks to everybody for the nice five-star reviews. Got a great rating on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Excuse me, Spotify, I should say. So if you left a nice review, thank you so much. Appreciate it. And uh, if you're looking to support the show, you can become a patron. Uh, you can b- become a patron for as low as a dollar a month. If you'd like to become the $5 a month tier, which is the most popular tier, that'll get you a shout out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. And of course, for everything else, if you want to check out the link in the show notes, that'll take you to the link tree where you can find links to in situ ecosystems. If you'd like to get a vivarium and get 10% off just by being a listener, make a link through the purchase and you will get a 10% discount because the show is awesome. Um, <laughs> and of course, uh, you'll find links to the uh, merchandise store if you want to get some t-shirts and things like that. Uh, it's still summer here in the USA. If you guys want to get some t-shirts and look pretty cool out there while you're on vacation, uh, that's your place to go. So uh, getting serious now. All right, enough. Matthew, how are you? Welcome. Thank you for uh, taking the time to talk to me. What's going on? Yeah, thank you very much for having me, Dan. Um, I'm delighted to to finally be able to get on and talk to you and uh, talk about some of my work. Um, I'm doing good. It's been uh, it's a long day over here in the UK, um, but I'm yeah. I'm hopefully I'm going to bring some energy. <laughs> I've still got some in the reserve tank, so I'm I'm looking forward to having a good chat. Me too. Me too. Yeah, we were we were just kind of talking off air, and um, I know it's it's early here and it's kind of late for you, but I'm glad we were able to reach some uh, some common ground. Uh, you know, interesting. Before we get started, though, I just want to mention I um, I'd actually found out about the University of Manchester a long time ago, even when I started with the um, when I started the podcast because I was checking out the Frog Blog, and uh, I just it took some time, but I'm really glad that I was able to get you because I've had such an interest in the project, and you work a lot with this. So, I was wondering if you could tell us about a little bit about yourself. Kind of how did you get into this? What's your story? What were your earliest amphibian experiences like, and what led you to work at the Manchester, um, excuse me, at the Manchester Museum in the Vivarium? Yeah, so um, I think, like probably a lot of your listeners, my my sort of journey probably started when I was very very young. Um, I was very fortunate to have a garden when I was growing up in in Manchester. Um, it was quite an overgrown garden when we first moved there. When I was probably I don't know four or five years old. And there was a population of common frogs in the garden, and I was absolutely transfixed by them. I, I used to spend days, weeks, months, it seemed, out in the garden trying to find them, watching them develop. Um, but first of all, they did, we didn't have any ponds, so it was really bizarre. These common frogs just kept spawning at the base of a big old sycamore tree, where it was obviously quite humid, but there was no water for them to develop. So... As a as a young kid, I'd, I'd start to dig ponds, and slowly they they sort of evolve from old margarine tubs into um, bigger and bigger ponds that got more and more sort of adventurous as I, as I explored the you know the the sort of concepts behind how you construct the the, the perfect um, uh, sort of miniature aquatic environment for them. So, yeah, I got that sort of bug from a very early age. Um, I was lucky that my parents were quite supportive, so uh, <laughs> they didn't mind me bringing in, 
you know, pockets full of frogs or, or whatever it might be, jars of frog spawn to watch it develop in, a, in an aquarium. So, yeah, I got started there and then pursued it to university level. Um, I was always really inspired by, you know, Sir David Attenborough's documentaries and I was just a bit of an animal nut in general, really. And amphibians were probably my earliest, um, you know, the entry level uh, animal for me. And, and you know, I ne it never really evolved much beyond that. But I got excited by all sorts of sort of different species. And um, as I started to sort of think about my career and how I could, um, you know, make a difference for these animals in the wild, I started to think about conservation, how I could get involved in it. And in my head, I always kind of envisaged that I'd be, you know, living somewhere remote up a tree <laughs> in the middle of the rainforest. Um, and that would be my lot for life. But it all kind of really changed when I, I, I did a zoology undergraduate degree at the University of Salford. And I had to do a, an industrial placement. And I made an inquiry with at Manchester Museum because I knew all about the collection. I'd obviously grown up in the area. And um, I made an inquiry. They didn't do placements, but I'd, you know, I was really enthusiastic, and I, and, you know, I think I sent, a, you know, a hundred emails or something. So they invited me down to have a look around the collection and discuss opportunities with them. But nothing ever came of it. We weren't able to 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 make a placement, but it was that kind of initial conversation that that really inspired me, and I ended up getting a position at Chester Zoo, which is one of the largest. Um, zoological sort of collections in Europe, I think, uh, if not the world. It's, it's an, an amazing, massive organization that does an awful lot of conservation work. And that was kind of my introduction into ex situ conservation as a, as a sort of field, um, as an undergrad. And I, before that point, I hadn't really understood the value, I suppose, of these ex situ populations and how they could be used to, to really enact you know, positive conservation change for imperiled species in the wild. So for me, that really started something when I thought, well, actually, you know, there, there, is, a, there is a career here for me. <laughs> and I knew that there was Manchester Museum on my doorstep. So when I graduated, there, there you know, very <laughs> fortuitously, a position came up, a part-time position at the museum as curatorial assistant in herpetology. And I managed to get it. And and I only really could make it work because I could live at home with my parents and I could pursue further education as well. So I started my master's degree, um, which was part funded by the university. So it was it was this great sort of, you know, it was a lucky coincidence, but also, you know, I, you know, I managed to make it work somehow. And yeah, that was nine years ago. So, yeah, it's been a bit of an evolution since that point, but they've <laughs> they've not managed to shift me. yet. I'm, I'm staying around for the long haul, I hope. And the Manchester Museum, can you give us kind of a, a broad idea of what they do? Because I know that the vivarium is just kind of one small part. What, what occurs in the, in the greater picture at the Manchester Museum besides just the vivarium? So the museum itself is um, a Victorian collection, uh, primarily. So it was sort of has its origins in the, um, you know, over, gosh, I think it was 18, 1888, something like that. I think the original building opened. I'll probably get corrected now by some of my colleagues. But, uh, yeah, it was a, long, a good long while ago. And uh, it was a part of the university. Well, it got acquired by the University of Manchester as the university's uh, museum. 
and it's a natural history and sort of cultural museum. So we have galleries that are dedicated to a lot of these uh, Victorian collections. So there's, you know, a, a massive uh, collection of um, entomological specimens, including lots of types. Uh, there's also uh, a, a, a huge uh, zoological collection, which includes some of Darwin's um, uh, specimens, which is quite incredible. Um, but then it also has a lot of um, cultural um, and really important cultural collections, including a, a, a big, uh, very important collection of Egyptology in Sudan. We have collections of um, Chinese culture, South Asian culture. We have a, a really broad um, sort of basis of over four and a half million objects, I think, in total. So it's a, it's a pretty substantial uh, university museum. It's, it's just gone through a massive redevelopment. So we've, we've built a huge extension now so we can house really large sort of national level uh, tour and exhibitions. And our current one is called The Golden Mummies of Egypt, which is uh, really, really great and actually did tour the US, I think just before COVID or around sort of 2020, I think. Um, so yeah, it's been, uh, it's been evolving over the last couple of hundred years almost. And um, yeah, a lot of change, but a lot of really exciting work that goes on. And the vivarium has been a part of that now for, well, I think 60 years next year. So it was originally uh, a teaching collection for the University of Manchester. So we had our zoology department in the, in the building next door. And one of the old professors there had a, an, a, an aquarium collection of and vivariums, but it was basically random eclectic animals from all around the world that they would use to, as a teaching resource for their zoology undergrads. And over time, after this professor sort of retired, it, got, it kind of got absorbed into the museum and they'd start to open it out, you know, over weekends so that people you know, the members of the public could actually go up to this top level of the museum and, and, and see some of these animals. And it just proved to probably be one of our most popular exhibits straight from the very beginning. Um, you know, the, the, the public, the visitors just really, really warmed to the, to the collections and to the idea of, of these really unusual and, and, and beautiful animals sort of situated in the heart of Manchester, which is very industrial city. So um, seeing sort of little snapshots of wilderness and biodiversity is is probably much needed for for many of our for many of our visitors. Has it always been called the Vivarium, or did that name occur more recently? Yes, yeah, so that's that's more recent. So I think the the original gallery was called the Cannon Aquarium, and it was named after Professor Graham Cannon, and he was the the head of zoology. Um, up until the 1960s. Um, and then once it got absorbed into the museum, I think they kept the Canon Aquarium, and then it came, became the sort of Canon Aquarium and Vivarium. And then I think probably around about 30 years ago, uh, I think they changed it to the Vivarium. And that's when we, we, we evolved into a more of a, a themed collection that moved away from these kind of eclectic random assortments of animals to something that's more focused on what we now sort of categorize as our sort of three key areas. So that would be an education collection, research collection, and a conservation collection. And that's really been evolving now over the last sort of 25 years. 
Yeah, I, I want to talk about that, actually. Um, your current position, why don't you kind of just give us an idea of what your roles are at the vivarium and some of the amphibian species that you're working with in these various collections? Yeah, so we're we're a very small collection, um, relatively speaking. So we only have a few hundred animals in the collection. Um, but we, we what we do have is a very small but dedicated team of, of staff. So at the moment, I'm a curator of herpetology. So I'm, I'm heading up this team in the vivarium. Uh, and I've got two curatorial assistants underneath me, Bethany and Lewis, who uh, they manage the sort of day-to-day maintenance of the collection and then we have a small team of volunteers as well that also help us out with the uh with the sort of day-to-day servicing and the cleaning and the food culturing and preparation um but but effectively a a lot of the work that we do is very much um you know very hands-on we we tend to to err on the side of traditionally sort of hand operated we spray everything by hand we water change we clean everything every single day and that is primarily because we work with some very sensitive species so the the sort of star of our collection would probably be atelopus varius which is the the variable harlequin toad from uh, costa rica and panama um but we also have a number of very uh, endangered um tree frogs including the lima leaf frog aglitnus lima um aglitnus annie uh the the orange-eyed leaf frog uh we also have a few other species of uh aglitnus uh, including like moraletti which were a critically endangered species but have, have been reclassified now um and some other really unusual sort of species like um boana picturata um which are a beautiful hylid from colombia they're they're a stunning frog um, and also a few uh, reptiles as well. So we have a, a small breeding population of uh, Fijian banded iguanas, which is quite cool, as well as some of our animals. So it's a little bit random, some of the animals, but when you come through the gallery, we, 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 we talk about different themes. So it's about um, evolution and adaptation. We explore messages around conservation and research, because research can tend to have quite a a negative connotation when we're talking about animals and research, but we sort of stress that there are non-invasive ways and uh, ways that you can explore and describe animals without necessarily having to harm them. So yeah, so it's it's uh, it's, it's a bit random in places, but it's I think one of our more popular spaces in the museum, and uh, it's a it's a, a joy to be able to work with them. It, to me, it sounds like a dream job come true. And I just, I, I do want to give a shout out to Lewis. I don't know if I mentioned it earlier, but I want, I want to thank Lewis because he was actually instrumental in putting the two of us together. Yeah, he's a good, good guy, Lewis. <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks, Lewis. I appreciate it. But um, you, you raise an interesting point. Actually, it was um, just to backtrack a little bit. So it was education, research, and conservation. Now those are the three. Those are three separate collections within the vivarium, and they're all on display. Or h- how does that how does that work? Do you keep them all three, or, or is there like uh, are they intertwined somehow? Uh, they they can be intertwined to an extent. It, effectively, when we when we create our um, we create our collection plan, we we have to justify why we have certain animals within the collection. So I think this is something that's becoming more and more important within zoological collections that really we have to be quite strict. You know, we, 
we don't take it lightly keeping these animals in captivity and and you know and have housing them here in the museum you know thousands of miles away from where they would would occur in the wild but what we've what we've worked on is is a plan that basically says does this animal have an education value and do we use it to you know teach um undergraduates or uh, school aged children so that would be something maybe like agalitinus calidrius um you know where it's not it's not an endangered species but it has you know it's one of the most iconic and beautiful sort of charismatic amphibians and actually by having them they're quite robust as well so they tolerate being sort of in you know having interactions with the public although the public don't handle them it's more that they're <laughs> they're quite robust in in that we can show them to the public without them being unduly stressed um, so that would be sort of the education collection. And that also includes some animals that, that might be, you know, like chameleons, for example, where you can, you can really clearly talk to primary age children. So these are sort of, you know, ages four to 11, and you can talk to them about uh, adaptation, evolution. And when you have an animal like a chameleon that's so well adapted to its environment, it, there's just nothing quite like it really in terms of a teaching resource um so it really inspires our our, our visitors to to kind of get involved with with the animals and, and and learn more about them and then you have research so that might be species like our cruzia hyla that we have so we have all three species of cruzia hyla we have the calcarifer uh, crospedipus and sylvie um, and Sylvia uh, or Sylvia's leaf frog was actually described in the museum, so that they they fit into our conservation wow. collection. Where having them within um, the museum is it enables us to do sort of non-invasive conservation, uh, sorry, research work on them. So describing tadpoles, describing behaviours, describing species, even in some ex uh, examples, where we can do that just by due of having them within the museum. Um, and one really cool example of this, I think, is uh, one of our student projects that's just been completed. Hopefully, we will be published soon, uh, where it is looking at um, temperature treatments on uh, Agalitinus calidrius tadpole development. And, it, you know, when we're talking about climate change and these things, the reality is that we, we don't fully understand its impacts on, you know, amphibians. And, and by doing very small and non-invasive, so they're not going to harm the amphibians, but we can do it just by having them in the museum. So it's quite exciting, you know, what we can what we can understand through that sort of non-invasive research. And then, yeah, finally, the conservation collection. So those would be animals like uh, the lemur frogs, uh, the variable harlequin toads that, that are an endangered species. But by having them within the museum, we're able to do... Uh, raise awareness, raise funding, support in situ conservation work. It's all really, really good, you know. So that's kind of how we break it down. And some of those animals, they might fit into both research and conservation, or they might fit into education and research. But it just means that we've justified why we have them within the museum collection. That's interesting. Is there like a greater governing body that you have to report to because i mean obviously you said that you have to justify keeping them who ultimately makes that decision like what authority do you have to report that to yeah that's, that's a great point so um in the uk I, d I don't know if it's different in in the us but 
we have to be uh, zoo licensed, basically, when we keep over a certain number of animals, and especially if they're on display to the public, you, uh, you need to have a zoo license. Uh, and to meet that, you have to hit certain criteria. So that involves things from fire and uh, evacuation and escape, uh, escaped animal procedures to education plans, to veterinary health plans, to conservation plans. It's really quite in-depth the amount of work that we have to do to, to make sure that we meet all of these criteria. And this is laid out on sort of like a government level. So we are we have to report this to our council and they will, every six years, they'll do a, a major inspection where they'll send around uh, vets and members of the council who'll sort of inspect the collection and make sure that we hit all of these criteria. And what we do in the vivarium is we're, you know, we're very proud of the fact that our collection is actually used as almost like a benchmark within amphibian work in the UK. So when they write these kind of guidelines, they often <laughs> use our collection as, as the sort of, you know, that's the, that's the highest sort of level that, that we should be aspiring towards. And so we're always trying to push that and, and to make sure that, you know, that we're, that we're ahead of the curve and, you know, any, any new technology or, or new sort of understanding about welfare or husbandry that we, that we are sort of early adopters um, and that we were, you know, we make sure that we maintain that sort of consistency of, 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 of the collection. So, yeah, so really that's one area that we're kind of held to account. We also, as, as a member of the university, we're held account by the wider university, and that goes up through the sort of hierarchical structure. So I report to our head of collections and to the director of the, of the museum. And they'll, we'll have sort of ethical reviews as well, that, that we have an ethical committee, and they'll also sort of keep us to, you know, they're the sorts of people that we design these kind of collection plans with. And it's great, really, because it brings in people with animal and husbandry experience, but also sort of lay people that might not understand, you know, certain aspects of animal husbandry, but might come in with really interesting advice or, or sort of questions that, you know, sometimes when we're so focused on the frogs, we can miss some of the bigger picture stuff as well. So, yeah, really, really good to have that behind us. And, and it helps keep us on our toes at all times, really, and, and, and push ourselves towards greater excellence in husbandry. <laughs> Are some of these species kept in other places in the UK? Because I'm thinking that, obviously, the, the collection that you have is very, very... Uh, specific, should we say? You have some very, very, uh, very critically endangered uh, species, some of that are particularly uh, challenging when it comes to husbandry. How do you, like, is there any other facilities that have these types of animals? And if so, are you the ones advising care? Because to me, it seems like I always believe that the person who's doing the work should be the person giving the advice. And I, I, I'm always curious about how, like, um, you know, greater organizations manage, like, very, very specific projects when the people involved might, might, might be the only ones who know how to do it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a really good point. I think, you know, from an, from an ethical perspective, we, we put a lot of emphasis on, you know, who we share animals with or share sort of projects with because the reality is that there's not many people or organizations that could maintain some of the species that we work with adequately. Um, you know, the, 
we do and have worked um, for a long time with a, with a couple of European institutions, um, sort of namely Bristol uh, Zoological Gardens, um, who, we've, who are a big partner in our Lima Frog project, and also um, Norden Zark in Sweden, who are another sort of long-term sort of partner on, on the Lima Frog project. We've also done work with uh, Chester Zoo over the years and, and shared animals between our collections and you know, I, I know very well the staff because I, I spent, you know, time there doing an internship and, and worked with them for, for a while. So I know the team there. I know that their sort of standard standards are, you know, as good as as what we sort of aspire to, towards. So, yeah, I mean, the, we, we, we do get requests quite frequently from from smaller collections or, or sort of more generic collections about keeping, you know, some some species that we work with. But it's to be honest it's um it's not something we do lightly we, we we vet them you know really sort of um intensely to make sure that that the animals are going to be well looked after because i think species like agalitnus lima i mean I, I think nowadays people would would have a better understanding but when when they were first brought into um the sort of uk zoo community it was through the museum I, think, I, I remember being told that they were sent to a number of institutions and i think it was within a month they'd lost sort of 90 percent of the the frogs that were sent out they just they just did and then that was even with sort of guidelines that we'd provided in in you know at the time about how to keep them you know the sort of regime that's required because it can be quite it, it almost sounds a bit over the top some of the the way that we maintain the frogs but the reality is that's why, you know, we've got lima frogs that live over 10 years in, in captivity. And, and for a tiny little uh, tree frog, that's remarkable. Um, but yeah, <laughs> it's because of the level of, of detail that, that we keep them, really. Um, so yeah, I hope, I hope that kind of clarifies. Yeah, I'm sorry if I made that question a little overly wordy, but that's that was what I kind of meant to get at was... Uh, when you're dealing with species that are, I'm trying to think of a better description, but we'll, we'll say sensitive, we'll say very sensitive species. It's not necessarily someone, or excuse me, they're not necessarily something that you're going to want to go into the hands of someone who might not necessarily have the familiar out, uh, the familiarity with them to be able to handle them appropriately. But no, I, I, I got it now. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and, and that is right. And, and I remember you mentioned about sort of the, you know, how, how we the guidance that you would provide. I mean, there are the, the best practice guidelines now that we've been involved in creating for a couple of species. Um, and, and, you know, and, and I know a lot of colleagues in, in the sort of the zoo community in the UK who've, who've created them. Um, and they're, they're brilliant, you know, and, and that is, that should be your, you know, go-to guide when it, when it comes to working with these species, you know, in advance to receiving them. And then also, you know, when you have them, because, these guys have worked with them for you know decades in some cases so it's it's it can be even you know for collections with as much experience as ours it can be a little bit um naive and 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 i don't know overconfident to think that you'll know how to look after them better than <laughs> the people who've been breeding them and working with them for so long so yeah we always try and you know take on as much advice and and, and then also sort of dish out advice as much as we can to any collections that are looking to work with these sorts of animals because you know we we're not we're not big fans of gatekeeping and, and we're very transparent about how how we do what we do <laughs> nothing's done under sort of you know under disguise or anything we're we, you know we're, we're super transparent about all of our 
of our secrets. <laughs> I see. Yeah, husbandry can be a complicated thing, and it's one of those things that kind of continues to evolve. And I, I'm always curious about how different organizations, I mean, I've had different people on from different museums and zoos and whatnot. Uh, I'm always curious about as to how they manage husbandry protocols and where they come from. And the answer is almost, the answers are always very, very similar, if not the same, that um, you, you generally have some people who work very, very closely with certain species, and they're the ones who kind of give the advice, and then everyone kind of kind of shares it, who, yeah. else, who else might be involved. But um, I, I want to get into that a little bit more, but I was wondering if we could just back up a little bit and talk about the Adelopis Conservation Project, because I, I, I want to spend some time talking about that. You're working with a species of Adelopis, and you're involved in a conservation project. I was just curious if you could kind of give us some background about how it started, what you're up to presently, and where the like what's the long-term goal is with this species of Adelopis. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, um, like I said, the 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 Adelopis uh, or the Harlequin Frog project that we've um, we've been sort of pioneering now for the last few years is is probably our sort of conservation um flagship program really it's um it was a big deal for us at the time when when we were able to to get them um and it really came off of a a lot of (laughs) a lot of hard work a lot of meetings a lot of conversations so um to begin with i think my my predecessor at the museum andrew gray he he presented to um i think it was a, a meeting of embassies from Central America and they were it was all around biodiversity and conservation and he'd been invited down to to present about some of his work in Costa Rica and uh, I think Amanda Bamford who was a professor as well at the university went down and they, they sort of presented this this vision of how Manchester University was able to uh, conduct conservation work in the neotropics and and how the the sort of expertise of the university and and the sort of collaborations with with partners had had proved to be quite successful and sort of after that meeting um i know that the the panamanian embassy got in touch and were very keen to get us involved in some conservation program in in panama so they they sort of brought uh manchester museum together with an amazing sort of new um conservation organization called panama wildlife um, and and they were sort of just getting started. Um, they were starting projects with uh, jaguars, with sea turtles, but they were really keen on doing an amphibian program as well. Um, and they were aware of a population of, of atelopus in 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 Santa Fe National Park. So, you know, for I'm sure many many or most of your listeners will be aware, but the, you know, atelopus varus was once quite a common species in sort of high elevation areas throughout sort of central uh, Costa Rica and Panama. But then after the sort of Kitrid uh, outbreaks, um, you know, in the 80s, 90s, noughties, the, the population has just completely vanished, uh, along with a, a, an assortment of other Costa Rican and Panamanian sort of higher elevation species, especially buffonids that were really highly impacted by the, the Kitrid fungus as well as, you know, what we now think are, you know, climate-driven changes to the environment as well that kind of exacerbated these declines. Um, but, yeah, the, 
the species uh, seemed to have become extinct and then a, a small number of populations were, were, were discovered, some in Costa Rica and a, and a few in, in Panama. And this one population was found in, in the national park in Santa Fe. And unfortunately, there was a, a road being developed right through the centers to connect the sort of Caribbean and Pacific coasts, as, as I'm aware. And um, the problem is when you open these these sort of these national parks up and you build roads through it, you know, obviously there's quite a lot of ecological damage that's that's conducted when you build a road through a national park. But it also opens up the sort of central areas of these reserves to deforestation, to poaching and, and other sort of criminal activity, unfortunately. And um, that was the big worry that this road would would sort of threaten the existence of this population because Atelopus are, you know, incredibly sensitive animals. They they require, you know, pristine habitats. They can't survive where there's, you know, deforestation or pesticide use, pollution, invasive species or another sort of, you know, driver of their sort of decline. So there was a big fear about this population and, and its sort of long-term viability. So the, the Panamanian embassy had got us in touch with PWCC and between us we we came up with this project let's try and get an ex situ population so we have some sort of genetic safety net population in the museum but then through the museum having them in our collection we were we were able to fundraise to support sort of in situ monitoring of this population as well because what we were starting to find is that conservation programs especially around uh, atelopus with a lot of the the populations that were rescued, they're um, they're sort of what we would classify as a as a chytrid naive population. So they were probably rescued before the the chytrid fungus hit that particular area. Um, and since then, those populations have mostly disappeared. But these populations that have survived, are they able? To, you know, are they able to survive in the presence of chytrid? Are they immune to chytrid? Are they? Is it the is it the habitat or the particular site that enables them to su to survive when you know most of them have declined? We just don't really have good enough data on these kind of you know these kind of questions. So by having them in the museum, we were we were able to do a lot of fundraising. Unfortunately, <laughs> as with most activities around the world, this kind of ground to a halt when when the pandemic uh, arrived. So. We, we originally got the frogs to the museum in 2019. We, we've successfully reproduced them a, a number of times in our collection, but the conservation work in, in Panama has been, has been severely impacted. Um, and unfortunately, during the pandemic, we, we discovered that the site had been illegally logged um, and really badly damaged. So the, at the moment, we're not entirely sure about the the, the the size of the population so we've done some work to to ascertain some you know very limited sort of metrics on the size of the population but subsequent to this deforestation it, it, it seems to have either it's moved um further up or down the river or, or it's potentially vanished so yeah there's more work to be done and it kind of just really highlights the the, the importance of this project because the all of these populations you know we we, we start to understand that they're all quite unique and, and quite important, especially when we think about the long-term viabilities of these species. Because they've been so badly knocked back by the fungus, 
we need as much genetic variability as we can to, you know, to protect them for the long term future. So that's really why this is a, a big project for us. You know, I'm I'm aware that you know there's there's other people working with Atalopus and doing some great work, but this population is quite special, and you know, and, and the the link to the the community that we've developed in Santa Fe has been really powerful and 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 been really fantastic. So I think we're hoping to to create what will be a really collaborative, long term sort of holistic conservation program where we you know we bring in researchers from the local area. We, we engage with the communities and we've, you know, we engage with the communities here in Manchester as well as in, in Panama. So, um, yeah, we, we, we're hopefully we've got a, a Harlequin Frog Festival restarting um, next month, which I'm, I'm really excited about. And we're going to try and connect the communities from Manchester and Panama through the, the shared sort of appreciation of this beautiful species. So, I mean, it's fair to say that they're sort of an assurance colony then, right? Yes, yeah, to an extent. I mean, the 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 we only have we only started the population with six individuals, so it's it's not necessarily like a, a long term assurance population. We we have explored the possibility of acquiring um, additional sort of juveniles from from the wild, but obviously that was before the ha- the the site was was impacted by this this sort of deforestation. So the original population was was kind of like a a, a a proof of concept for us that we we were able to work with them and we were able to reproduce them and maintain them. Um, but then with a longer term ambition of these would be sort of ambassadors almost the same way that we had the embassy involved. These would be the, the ambassadors of, of this wild population. I see. Yeah. You know, let me ask you a question and, and this is maybe more of an opinion thing, but when it comes to in situ conservation versus ex situ conservation, I mean, one tends to be generally more, uh, like you said, like kind of like public relations. You'll have animals that are ambassadors, and uh, you know the opposite obviously is true for in situ. Um, I mean, do the two have any similarities when it comes to like the methods of execution? Meaning, like, uh, is it easier to raise and release? an endangered amphibian in its native habitat as opposed to raising it in a more controlled setting and then sending it back, you know, from a different country or wherever? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's something that I discuss all the time. So we, we, um, we know that when you have, um, populations say in, in the UK, if we were doing a head starting project and, and releasing amphibians, then we wouldn't be necessarily worried about, um, introducing diseases back into the habitat because these would be British frogs raised in, you know, outdoor environments, mesocosms, and then re-released into the wild. So we we know that that could be quite, you know, low impact. We know that we would be able to do it. The reality when you try and do that, though, with um, say with a with a, a Panamanian species, for example, and, and we're working with them in the UK, and we were if we were to try and head start populations or, or captive breed and re-release them into the wild, there's there's a there's a big risk about reintroducing or introducing new diseases into the habitat. So I think for the 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 way that you would combat that is through biosecurity essentially. So you need to create 
super sort of biosecure facilities to maintain these species in. And there are a number of collections that do this. The question I always have about that is is the costs, basically. Um, the reality is to create a biosecure facility in the UK that you could maintain an assurance population of an amphibian is 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 astronomical, really, and out of the the sort of realm of of most collections. Um, you know, most collections wouldn't be able to do that. Um, when actually, if we could fund or 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 sort of provide you know husbandry guidelines plus um funding and do uh, you know a captive breeding or head starting operation in country i think that could be that might be the way that a lot of conservation projects start to to go i mean the 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 issue they often have uh, you know and, and i speak a lot with my, with costa rican panamanian colleagues about these sorts of um issues is is the sort of infrastructure around live food um sort of equipment um and sort of and and pe- you know people with the sort of husbandry and 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 sort of background that, that a lot of the sort of european collections have that is a, an issue but i think you know it'll we'll start to overcome that in the coming years and and you'll see a lot more of these sort of skill exchanges and and, and bringing researchers over to collections in the uk or in the us for example training them up in in sort of husbandry methods and then and then helping get sort of um captive breeding programs established in country so in panama for example or in costa rica where you know we'd have that and and you know there's lots of examples of that being conducted already in in panama for example with with some of the atelopus um populations as well which is which is great to see yeah i'd be interested in I mean, obviously, like you said, it would cost a fortune, but if you did hypothetically raise a very sensitive species, we'll say, you know, one of the, a member of the Atalopus genus in an environment that was so biosecure that it might not necessarily allow any type of pathogen in, would that predispose these frogs to be even more sensitive if they were released back into the wild as opposed to frogs that had been exposed to, say, normal levels of pathogens? By that, I just mean anything, disease, germs you know whatever else um i don't know it'd it'd be interesting to see it pan out like that yeah i think that's fascinating and i mean this is something that i'm i'm personally quite interested in from sort of a developmental perspective it's it's, it's not really my area of expertise but I, i do find it fascinating that we still don't really understand how to create wild frogs essentially in captivity the frogs that we that we rear and that we um, and that we sort of develop through captive populations, they tend to be different. They, they you know, they're they're um, it can be as you know small things like their their color, their pigmentation, their size, their bone density. It can be things like their calls, their vocalizations. It can be their microbiome. It can be their um, behavior. All these kind of things are influenced by small things in their environment, hormones, the presence of predators while they're developing, um, as tadpoles, for example, has an influence on their on their adult behavior. Things like calling is is really interesting as well. So I think there's still so much for us to learn really. Um, but I think the biggest worry for a lot of uh, herpetologists is that you would you would do something that that harms the future sort of viability or success of these populations inadvertently, you know, because a lot of, 
you know, we're still learning so much about these diseases and, and you know, their long-term effects on the environment. So it, it really is, um, you know, the the worst nightmare of a, of a herpetologist to think that they had had some hand in, in you know, in, in introducing maybe an, an, a novel disease into a habitat, um, you know, and, and especially at moments like now where we're aware of B-cell and the potential havoc that it could wreak in in the new world then i think you know that's a really frightening proposition for a lot of european herpetologists because we're seeing the you know the the full extent of its sort of damage to european species already i think you really hit the nail square on the head with um what you said about we're not raised we're not creating wild frogs in captivity and that's the kind of the greater picture that's becoming more and more visible to me is that we're not like you said we're we're not creating wild frogs we're creating captive frogs and in in a in a kind of bizarre sense it's almost like some sort of very very subtle form of domestication where they become more able to survive in a captive environment because they've been selected by us to survive in a captive environment uh, it, it's yeah. not the first time I've heard that I've heard that from a few, a few people actually about uh, how difficult it is to get a species that's multiple generations in to transition to any point where it would be acceptable to be released in the wild. And then it kind of begs that question, do you want, I mean, in the event of an extinction in the wild, do you want to have a species that exists only as a captive population and then keep that solely in captivity? Or do you risk releasing that captive population to try and rewild? It's, I don't know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there's so many ethical sides to it and, and so many different possibilities but um i mean i think that you put that perfectly well that um it's it is it's it's literally and physically a different animal yeah yeah but i'm i'm a, a big proponent of of sort of the the sort of least amount of invasive sort of stuff you can do with captive populations that you know the better i i really don't I, I try my utmost not to treat any of our frogs for, for parasites. You know, I, I'm aware of parasite loads in the collection. You know, we regularly screen the frogs. But unless there is something really untoward going on, we don't treat them. And and that is, you know, perhaps a little bit controversial with some zoological collections because, you know, there is an emphasis on on having these animals, you know, completely clear of any any sort of disease or, or parasite. But the reality is the frogs that we have that have parasites live fantastically long lives in captivity. Um, and I, and I do think that treating them and clearing them of these kind of diseases is one, it's not, it's not natural. They're not going to, they, they would have parasites in the wild. If you ever see a wild, you know, Caladrius, for example, they always look like they're on the verge of death. And these are reproductive adults that, <laughs> that are doing really well, but they're, they're full of all sorts of parasites and, you know, carrying all sorts of diseases, but the reality is there. That's the wild state of these animals, um, and I think in captivity we can often we want all the frogs to be slightly obese and and completely clean of everything, but they're just not not wild frogs. They don't behave like wild frogs, and and in the yeah, like you say, in the future we'd we'd really struggle to to repopulate a, a population from you know a sixth generation group of Caladrius. They probably keel over as soon as they touched water that wasn't um you know reverse osmosis and remineralized <laughs> yeah it's interesting oh i i agree 100 percent. it's um 
It's it's interesting, especially since I mean, myself included, many many of my listeners, if not the majority, are hobbyists, and in the advent of the hobby where frogs became available, I mean, even as early as I'm sure that the 1960s and 70s in Europe, and then to a greater extent in the late 80s, early 90s in the United States. I mean, it's not that long ago. It was only a few decades ago, but in that amount of time, we've basically remodeled many of these species to suit our own needs and to thrive in captivity, and we've eliminated how many other genetic variables or environmental variables. We've selected for something that survives in our bedroom, which is 75 degrees, probably the majority of the year, in a glass box that's all temperature controlled, parasites, you know, deworming, et cetera, stuff like that. And you're right. You really fail to take into account the whole holistic picture of what goes into a species and how it would actually present in the wild versus what we've sort of created in captivity. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's fascinating. And I don't know what the answer is and I don't think we'll get to the answer anytime soon, but you know, it's, it's exciting to see that there are people investigating this, you know, and that people investigating pigmentation or calls and investigating sort of microbiomes and differences between wild and captive populations. Because, you know, the more that we understand about this, and it is, it's, a, it's an evolving field, um, captive husbandry. And I, and I think, you know, it's, it's great that, that, you know, hobbyists are as you know as much at the forefront as a, as a lot of zoological institutions in, in really pushing the the sort of boundaries of nutrition for example i think in the hobby that's probably you know even better than it is in in a lot of organizational uh you know collections uh, to see the the work that that people are exploring and and testing to try and you know to better our understanding and and, and to create animals that are healthier and and stronger and longer lived so yeah it's great and 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 i you know we have to not try and try not to beat ourselves up about it sometimes as well because i think everyone's got the best intentions and everyone wants to do their best for these animals and you know we're we're, we're going to get there eventually um but it's yeah we, we shouldn't kid ourselves in the meantime that's that's my sort of point i think yeah, it's just something to think about, really. And again, it's not to disparage the hobby or anyone in the hobby in particular. It's just um, we've come so far, we've advanced so much through so many of those things that you just mentioned, like advances in husbandry, lighting, supplementation, diet, um, veterinary medicine. It runs the gambit as opposed to when we started off this uh, this whole hobby endeavor a few decades ago. But yeah, it's interesting. It's just For me, it's just something to think about, the difference between wild frogs and captive frogs, particularly considering most people don't intentionally anyway, uh, generally work with uh, wild caught frogs, at least, at least in the, in the U S much. Do you guys have a lot of, I mean, we'll, actually we'll, we'll talk about the hobby a little bit later in the UK, but um, before we do that, I, I wanted to talk about some of the behind the scenes stuff, some of the nitty gritty, because many people out there, myself included, often have this, um, this very romanticized idea about what goes into maintaining a beautiful collection in a museum. And I'm sure there's a lot of work that goes into it. I was wondering if you could tell us what's involved being a curator at the museum. Maybe walk us through a typical day and tell us what kind of goes into some of the amphibians' care and how do you decide, you know, what everything eats and what the regimen is. Like, how how do you start an average day, go through it, and then finish it? 
All right. Yeah. An average day. That's <laughs> it's always difficult to, to, to create an average when every day seems quite unique in, in the museum. But um, yeah, I think, well, first of all, the, the, the museum setting is quite unique. Um, you know, that it's quite unusual for us to have live animals within a natural history museum. Um, and that creates some challenges, um, but also it's, you know, of great benefit to our visitors to see these animals, you know, interacting with an environment when they can just gone through a whole gallery full of taxidermy and, and spirit specimens. So it does have a really interesting sort of position in the museum. Um, but yeah, so a sort of general day would be, um, so we, the museum opens up um, at 9 a.m. Uh, we have a first sort of hour without the public, um, which is which is essential because <laughs> we need to do a lot of servicing on the gallery. So we we start off with our with our gallery exhibit. So we'll go through all of those. We'll do sort of um, visual inspections of the animals that we can see. So we don't sort of handle them or pull them out of the exhibit as much you know as much as we can. We try and leave the animals um, sort of undisturbed. But we'll do very quick sort of visual inspections, check their sort of behaviour, have a look at their sort of body condition. We'll do um, sprays. So all of our sort of spray systems bar one of our exhibits is done manually. And that probably <laughs> is a bit of an anathema to, to some of your listeners who will have some amazing systems. But we really like to do a lot of our sort of spraying by hand. Um, we We tend to find that the in terms of keeping the 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 environment at the sort of right sort of humidity i just prefer the sort of manual method really so we'll go through we'll give all our animals a, a good spraying down first thing in the morning then we'll do a feed um a lot of the activities that we do sort of environmental checks we'll do sort of a rough look at our sort of displays just to check that all of the the parameters are within the sort of acceptable range um, but we also have sort of data loggers that are collecting data and they're sort of downloaded once a week and we and we look at the the trends in a bit more detail. But outside of the 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 general exhibits on display, it's a hell of a lot of cleaning glass. <laughs> so um, galleries full of sticky fingered children and <laughs> and beautiful environments don't always go. Uh, hand in hand so we we have to scrub all of our tanks down really clean all the glass up make sure everything looks presentable to the to the visitors and then we get behind the scenes so that's after our sort of first hour um, and then we get started with the rest of the collection so as i mentioned earlier our, our collection is primarily focused on uh, tree frogs um, and sort of central american tree frogs we have a number of species kept in glass terrariums, so um, sort of glass tanks with um, potted plants. So we, we tend not to use um, too much substrate. A lot of our tanks are kept on a, on a sort of semi-sterile uh, sort of condition. So we'll use uh, capillary matting, which I'm not sure if you use similar stuff in the US, but it's basically made from recycled plastic fibers it's used a lot in greenhouse propagation um, because it's highly absorbent but it's inert so it doesn't react with um, the, the animals or their environment so we can use that as like a, a substrate within some of the tanks we cover a, a, a roughly maybe 25 percent of the the tank uh, floor 
with this capillary mat in. And what we'll do is every single day we have a service order and we'll go through all of our, all of our tanks in a particular order. So we have dedicated equipment for each unit. Um, and then we have, you know, gloves that we, nitrile gloves that we change between units. We sterilize all of our equipment using F10 disinfectant. And we'll go through each tank. And what we, we, to break it down, just one tank for you. <laughs> we, we clean the, um, the capillary mat in with hot water. So we try not to use any chemicals when we're cleaning inside of the tanks. Um, we, we tend to find that we don't really need it because we clean every single frog tank every single day. So it's a lot. <laughs> and this is where I was mentioning that some people might think we go a little bit over the top. But the reality is that by cleaning it every day, there's not a lot to clean. The tanks can be cleaned in, in maybe two or three minutes per enclosure. We just wipe around with paper towel, clean any um, sort of fecal matter out of there. We check for any dead crickets remove any um, sort of dead leaves or um, clean down all the glass surfaces. So if there's any sort of um, feces or anything like that, we can make sure everything is kind of sparkling, but we're not sterilizing it. We're not cleaning it with anything um, chemical. Um, and that way we, we don't leave any re residues in there. And, and I think that's of a, a great benefit to the frogs. So we, we sterilize the, uh, the, the capillary matting in sort of boiling water. We clean off any anything that's kind of stuck left on there, and then we put that back into the tank. Um, all the water we use is is uh, carbon filtered, um, so we we remove any chlorine out of the tap water. And we're very fortunate that our tap water is pretty um, frog friendly in Manchester, so we get a lot of rain, and all of our water comes from the Lake District, so it's uh, it's pretty pristine. It's pretty <laughs> pretty good for frogs. So we don't really need to add anything to it. It comes in at a really frog-friendly pH and um, sort of general hardness. So that's really great for us. And we give them fresh water and then sort of sprays usually once or twice maximum a day. And that's quite uh, surprising to a lot of our sort of amphibian friends. They, uh, they tend to think that we keep our tanks really wet but in reality we keep them very dry really we keep the humidity on the dry side so averaging probably 55 to 65 percent through most of the day and then going obviously we do quite heavy evening sprays and then that sort of boosts them then over the night once all the lights are off um and yeah that tends to be our sort of recipe for success with a lot of our uh, our sensitive tree frogs because they don't have um you know that that kind of stimulus to breed is what i think causes a lot of frogs to lose body condition it tends to result in um parasite loads building up because the animals are already under that kind of stress where they're trying to reproduce so we keep them quite dry that kind of turns off that reproduction sort of <laughs> node in their head um and that way they they tend to be a lot healthier they tend to be quite robust and because they're asleep during the day anyway, they, they're retaining their moisture, they're keeping themselves hydrated, and they're only becoming active at night when that, temp, when that sort of humidity boosts up during the evening. So we'll go through, we'll clean every single tank out in the exhibits. Um, that takes generally the majority of our day, so we'll have a little bit of help from our volunteers if they're in during the day. Um, and then we'll also have to take part in teaching. So we have uh, sort of teaching obligations for the university 
and the museum. So that might be teaching a guest lecture in our lecture theatre. It might be teaching our sort of visiting schools about evolution, like I mentioned earlier. Or it could be uh, sort of more general engagement. So we do engagement activities in the uh, museum where we have Meet the Keeper, which is one of our new programs where the public get a chance to meet one of the curatorial team who, you know, talk to them about the animals, about the conservation and the research that we do. Um, so we often are involved in those kind of activities. Um, and then we have research as well. So we're often supervising student projects in the, in, the, uh, in the sort of collection or we're doing our own research. So I'm in the middle of uh, a PhD at the moment exploring uh, environmental DNA, um, metabarcoding and its application for amphibian conservation. So a little bit of my time is also taken in doing that. <laughs> so it keeps me busy, but that's kind of like a general day. So we also do a lot of, um, of our own sort of uh, live food um, culturing. So as I'm sure many of your uh, listeners are, are, are all too familiar with a lot of, a lot of fruit fly culturing. So we culture a, a lot of our own uh, feed on, on, on site. We're a bit restricted because we're a museum. So we, we can't feed certain species that might turn out to be pests in the rest of the collection. We have some, priceless herbarium um, collections and obviously ancient Egyptian artifacts that would would not appreciate being nibbled by an escaped cockroach or or weevil so we're <laughs> we're quite limited in that regard but what we do house and, and and culture is you know lots of springtails and aphids pfids and um, fruit flies and and then we order in a lot of our own sort of crickets and locusts and these kind of things that we can we don't really have the space all the time or maybe the patience and the the nose for culturing crickets because they stink. <laughs> so I tend to outsource that part and we, we just look after the, the ones while we're, we're feeding them out. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that's probably it from from a day to day. We're obviously doing a lot of record keeping. We're liaising with our partners. We do a lot of tours for our sponsors. So one of our fundraising activities is to to offer sponsorships to our uh, visitors so they can sponsor a frog for a certain you know one-off payment and that comes with a behind the scenes tour of the collection so they get to come in and speak speak to our staff and and see our frogs and all close and personal so yeah that's probably one of the uh the sort of big activities that we're involved in as well in the museum two two follow-up questions to that because you you kind of got me curious about one thing Cleaning the glass with the uh, everyone because everyone loves cleaning glass. Do you notice an improvement with the frog's general health by regularly cleaning the glass? Because I, I know a couple of people here in the U.S. who work with some of the tree frog species that you mentioned, and they're pretty insistent on making sure that the glass is very, very clean. And does that factor in at all? You guys just keep it clean just because it's part of the protocol. No, it's it's definitely the former. So yeah, they, we 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 notice that if you don't clean them, so we we kind of are obligated to be in with the collection every day of the year. Part of our zoo license, we have to have a member of staff. We, even on Christmas Day, we're in there cleaning frog tanks, um, so that we don't get any days off from from that obligation. But we don't necessarily have to clean the frogs every day. We just need to be there. That's our own sort of personal decision to to take with regards to their husbandry. And 
it is really important. You can see with species like lemur frogs, and I, I don't want to keep saying them because <laughs> it make them sound like like a very sort of <laughs> highly strung species, but they 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 show it. They show their skin will go all red, and they'll 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 start picking up infections, and they'll they'll just not look happy at all. If you if you don't clean that glass, you you're leaving you know urine uh, urates and different things in in their environment and it's just uh yeah it's not pleasant for the frogs at all and and, and we've found you know if, if for example we've got volunteers that that might not clean to the same standard you you can tell the next day when you when you go through the the service and that you these frogs are a bit upset because <laughs> they weren't clean to the to the same standard as they normally are I can, I can imagine, especially having that big of a collection. Yeah, and that was going to be another thing I was going to ask you about was, obviously the museum is going to have hours where the public can come in and whatnot, but it's going to be a seven-day-a-week endeavor to make sure everything is, is clean. I mean, do you, I mean, I don't know what your schedule is like, but how does the museum manage the staffing for days like, like Christmas Day or, um, I don't know, I mean, we have slightly different holidays than you guys in the UK, but Christmas Day is a perfect example. Who Who comes in and sits there with the frogs and how long do you actually have to stay there for to maintain the, the protocol so i think without the public we can we can probably get through the servicing of the entire collection in in five hours i would say four or five hours like if you're on your own um if you had help which you don't have on christmas day because nobody wants to come in um <laughs> you might be able to get it done in a slightly shorter amount of time but but because we do everything manually, you'd still be very restricted. You, you'd end up being there anyway to wait to do the evening sprays for them. So um, the reality is we, we just rotor it. So we have a kind of stable rotor for the most part where we have one of Bethany or Lewis who will work on the weekends alongside volunteers. Uh, and we kind of split days that way. Um, but then when it comes to um, the holidays and, and, and sort of, days when the museum is shut we we tend to split it up evenly between us um and if somebody worked christmas day last year well they're not going to work it for the year after so we'll we try and balance it so it's fair um i tend to work quite a few of those days because i live quite locally to the museum so for me on christmas day it only takes you know 20 minutes to get into the museum whereas some of my <laughs> colleagues might be traveling in for 40 minutes or an hour so yeah, it's a bit tough, really, for them. <laughs> That's why I tell people that frogs are a commitment. Don't. <laughs> if you keep sensitive frogs, don't get in the idea you're going to go away for two weeks and just leave everything on autopilot. It's not going to happen. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and especially with these. I mean, I know other collections where they, you know, if, if they've got bulletproof species where they can just leave them with a with a bucket of water and they'll be fine, but it, it, it doesn't work with these frogs. They're, if they don't get sprayed and they don't get, you know, the right amount of attention, they, they just won't wake up, they won't feed, and they'll just lose body condition rapidly. So, yeah, they're not very forgiving. Do you have any intentions of going towards a more automated system, like a, a misting system on a timer? Um, so we have our, our sort of state-of-the-art exhibit that we've created for our Atelopus various display. Um, and that has got a really cool bit of kit where we, we inserted um, a humidity um, temperature probe into the environment, which controls via a nifty bit of kit um, the sort of spray system. So whenever the humidity drops below 
I think it's 60%. It triggers the um, the spray system to kick in for however long it takes it to hit 90%, for example. So you can have these bits of kit that are bespoke to certain enclosures. I think it was more important for the Atalopas because they come from that kind of stream side, you know, spray zone where the humidity is 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 very sort of consistent really you know they will go through drier periods and obviously the females live slightly different life to the the males so they'll they'll move away from the streams but with certain species i think it's more important so you, you know we have um a, a species of starois as well which is like a um uh, the foot flagging frogs from Borneo and they again live in this kind of spray zone around waterfalls so they need something a bit more automated rather than say most of our tree frogs that live you know quite high up in in the, the canopy layers of the rainforest where actually during the day they're exposed to you know really high levels of UV they're exposed to really warm sort of hot temperatures direct sunlight in a lot of cases um, and yet, you know, we keep them. We keep them in these small glass environments, and we think, oh no, they need to. You know, the 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 humidity in that part of Costa Rica would be, you know, ninety five percent. But actually, when you're in the environment in Costa Rica, there's such amount of fluctuation between, you know, a very small patch of forest that actually allowing a bit more variation and allowing them to dry out a little bit more, I think, is really beneficial. And actually, probably more representative of the wild than. Than what they what we try and force them into these you know very narrow bands of of, of variation in in captivity. And I'm I'm looking at the museum's Twitter page, and it has a picture of the display tanks. These are absolutely incredible. Now I know a lot of the collection is off exhibit, but how do you manage the the enclosures that are on exhibit? Like I mean, just just a logistical question. Some of these things are huge. How do you clean that? Do you physically go in there or how do you, how do you access the inside of that to clean it? Yeah, so for the Atalopus one, this this is our biggest exhibit. I, I wouldn't know how big it is in terms of, you know, gallons or anything, but it's it's large. It's very big. Um, and you can fit multiple people in there at the same time. So that, that kind of gives you an idea of the size of it. Um, and yeah, so we, when we were designing this, it was it was uh, it was quite funny because we we had this large exhibit that was quite problematic we were having issues with um with plants and substrate and it, it just it was never it looked great for maybe 12 months 18 months after you refurbed it and then slowly it just the lighting wasn't great so the plants would die back a bit or it was too wet in certain areas so you'd get things rotten and the frogs were happy as larry in there but they didn't tend to sort of you know the, the tank just didn't look great long term so we decided to go back to the sort of drawing board um, and it was literally a drawing that I did on on the whiteboard in the department about this kind of waterfall that would disappear into the rocks, which would be a false floor that would flood underneath. And that would allow us to sort of wash away any um, sort of, you know, feces from the frogs and the lizards that live in there without sort of damaging the substrate. So we wouldn't have to do really regular um sort of changes to the substrate we could keep it on on this kind of uh rock and uh concrete exhibit that was landscaped into a waterfall 
so we designed this whole environment and it was it was it was done on a whiteboard but it, it actually grew into this amazing uh, exhibit and it, it took a long time for us to develop one of the big problems aside from the precious artifacts that we have in the museum is the fact that we also have um a, you know the building that we're in is is a beautiful grade one listed um uh, building that was designed by the same architect that built the Natural History Museum in London. So this really Gothic-inspired, um, almost Hogwarts-looking um, building. And if you want to install a new air conditioning unit <laughs> in a building like that, it presents all kinds of logistical challenges. So we had lots and lots of issues with designing and, and how we constructed it and how we would control the temperature, the humidity, all these kind of things. Um, but a lot of it's done through sort of, you know, building off of our expertise in, in other, you know, so we, we've, you know, we've a long history. I've been there now for nine years. My sort of uh, predecessor was there for 27 years. So, you know, there's a lot of expertise that we've been able to sort of build upon. So that always helps. We're not doing things, you know, from a, a, a complete naive sort of position. Um, but we're always trying to work our way around the feasibility of servicing the exhibits, the realistic, you know, how, how feasible it is to get in and out, how safe they are for the animals, how, you know, long-term are they viable? Are they going to need lots of maintenance or, um, you know, are they, any, are they energy efficient or are they going to, you know, <laughs> contribute to soaring energy prices and for the museum? So we're always trying to balance all of these different variables and what we find is that, you know, some species we just wouldn't be able to keep and we wouldn't be able to display in a way that's adequate for them. So back to our sort of collection plan, um, that is also, you know, something that we very carefully take into account. Can we provide the adequate environment? Are we going to display this animal? And if so, how are we going to do it in a way that does the animal justice, but also doesn't create four hours of additional husbandry <laughs> work for us on a daily basis so yeah it's a it's a balance but i think we're doing really well with it at the moment the gallery looks really good although tanks periodically spring leaks so i've just had to dismantle one of our beautiful familio exhibits which was really well grown in but unfortunately it sprung a leak so i've had to completely strip that in the last week with with uh, with the other curatorial team and we've been re-siliconing it all back together now um so yeah challenges come at us on a on a daily basis but it's it's all part of the fun of working with a big diverse collection like we have at the museum yeah i feel like any kind of amphibian uh what's the word i'm looking for i guess this display tank is, is always going to evolve there's going to be points where it looks great and there's going to be points where it looks terrible and it's it's kind of like maintaining a little greenhouse but while we're talking about plants who who makes the plant choices do you guys just go on, off of like whatever is aesthetically pleasing or do you try to recreate the specific biome that the frogs come from yeah so um i mean again it's a it's a collective sort of decision so we're um you know, we're we're all as most frog sort of enthusiasts are. You 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 gradually get sort of drawn to plants almost as a <laughs> is it just comes with the territory and and whether that's orchids or 
um, philodendrons or bromeliads. Um, we, we've kind of we've caught the itch, and we're, we're we're all kind of really into our plants as well. So when it comes to creating the environment, we we try our best to be true to the sort of biomes where these animals come from. So we have. Um, some Australian species, we try and keep them with Australian or Australasian species of plants. Same with our Malagasy species or whether it's uh, a lot of our stuff, obviously, Central American. So we, we go off of what we can get in that sort of region. And for our Atalopas exhibit, that was a big part of designing that environment. And a lot of these plants were, were difficult to come by. Um, we've recently gone through Brexit in the UK, which is made it really, really difficult to get hold of a lot of the, the, the more specialist vivarium plants that, that used to be really easy to get through uh, Germany and the Netherlands, which are big plant sort of uh, hubs in Europe. So now that's become very difficult. But we're, we, we try our best and we, you know, we have a good connection with um, Ben at Fantastic Frogs, who um, is a great uh, little business in the UK who who gets really interested in bromeliads and philodendrons and stuff. So he's a really great contact for us, and he he navigates a lot of these sort of imports in a much more efficient way than we can try and do on our own. So yeah, working with great plant people and um, you know sharing little cuttings here and there always always helps uh, the plants go a long way. Yeah, it's just one of those things that you kind of can't skip, especially with anything with dart frogs or atalopis. It just seems like the plant, uh, the plant angle is really important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, especially yeah, if you if you're working with like pomilio and stuff, it's uh, yeah, it's really important. Um, but then from a from an aesthetic perspective, for our visitors, they want to see these animals behaving in a natural way. And there's no better way of doing that than providing them with with the the plants that they would live and they've evolved to sort of live amongst in the wild. So yeah, it's it's, it's a no brainer for me, and it's you know it's a it's a great thing to be able to do, and and we try our best. There might be somewhere you know if if we got someone who was you know really on their plant knowledge, they go, well actually this plant's only found in Colombia, it's not found in Panama, but you know. I, I think I'll forgive myself for those discretions, really. <laughs> I know. I, f I fall into the same trap. You become this um, super sensitive, uh, hyper-aware person who you try to... I'm like, wait a minute, that doesn't belong there. But in in reality, for a display, it, it I guess it doesn't make much difference. How does the public react to these displays? Because, I mean, I can tell you from looking at these pictures, if if, if like younger me, if like little Dan, who was like 10 years old, walked into this place... I wouldn't want to leave. How, how does the public react to such a stunning display? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the proof is in the popularity of the gallery. I mean, we, we have to compete with ancient Egypt and we have to compete with dinosaurs. And the fact that we're probably on a par with dinosaurs is the best <laughs> is the best sort of evidence you could ever provide to the popularity of the gallery i mean the the the, the families absolutely love it and and the brilliant thing about um our museum is it's completely free to enter so there's no cost you can come in as many times as you want and and it's been around for so long that now we have grandparents who were brought into the museum by their parents bringing their grandkids in so you have this kind of this really nice um environment where people can come at their leisure 
They can, you know, if they work locally, they come in on their lunch breaks and spend 10 minutes with the frogs. And it's just, yeah, it's brilliant. And and since we reopened, so I, I mentioned earlier, we did this, you know, this huge redevelopment that's that actually saw the museum shut for a number of years around the the pandemic. And it was a really big undertaking for us to 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 get this extension. And it meant that visitors couldn't come for a number of years. And um, since we reopened, we've had over Gosh, it must, well, it's over 400,000 visitors and we only opened in, in February. And, and to bear in mind that I think our, our attendance used to be, um, you know, half a million a year pre, <laughs> pre-shutting. It, we're, we're going to absolutely smash those records. So, you know, I think it's people are, uh, you know, are desperate to see these, um, you know, these amazing um, collections and, and they've really missed having that resource for the, for the, uh, for the city. You know, Manchester is quite renowned for being a very industrial place. It's not necessarily renowned for its uh, parks and green spaces, although there are, you know, lots of, um, you know, a lot of work being done in the city now to create more green areas and to try and boost our biodiversity on our doorstep. But having these little oases of, uh, you know, Costa Rican and Panamanian um, habitats for you to come in and, and spend a little time for, well, it's brilliant for your well-being. You know, we understand more about the the value of nature from from that perspective, and I think um, our visitors all absolutely love it. And it's evidenced by the you know the number of people who then sponsor our our conservation work, and you know the conversations that we have on the gallery with you know through our Meet the Keeper program. It's it's great. You know, and we we do everything. We're very transparent. We have these big areas that people can actually see through into our offshore facilities. And they can see us, you know, cleaning frog tanks for hours and hours and they, they just stand there watching us. They love it. So um, sometimes you can hear the really cheesy dad jokes where they're describing, you know, the animal on display as homo sapiens. <laughs> um, but it's great, you know, and we love it. And it's, it's been it's a real joy to be back open to the public now. Oh, that's good. That's that's encouraging. I, I, I was just it's funny that you mentioned that because I was at the Bronx Zoo uh, a few weeks, well, not actually, I'm sorry, a few days ago, prior to, by the time this comes out, it'll been a few weeks, but, and um, I, we get, um, we have a season pass that we get every year, a membership, and sometimes I'll just like to go and just hang out in certain areas, and I saw this just like that, I saw that a keeper had gone into one of the exhibits in the rodent house, and I'm watching him just clean the glass and clean everything out, and he'd left the door open to the back, you know, the behind the scenes area, so of course, I'm like, staring back there and like craning my neck just to see like what's back there what kind of lighting do they have I'm like oh they got this awesome table and then i look around my <laughs> wife and kids are looking at me like what are you doing i'm like i just <laughs> i just want to see how they do it i said I, this is great this is everything we see but it's the behind the scenes stuff all the work and everything like that that goes into it so that's what interests me as as an adult like you know i mean don't get me wrong i'm still very impressed by the displays but you know as a kid I always wanted to look at the displays. And now that I've gotten older, I want to know how the displays were made, but that's just me being a weirdo. So <laughs> uh, I have to ask you, do you, do you keep any frogs at home? Are you involved in the hobby at all? I, I have been over the years. Um, at the moment, I've, I've not got any frogs at home. I've got a couple of uh, reptiles, but I've, I've, I have lots of dart frogs and, and, and mantella over the years. Most of them are now in the museum collections. So 
I was breeding, um, you know, just some uh, Leucomelus for a number of years, and and it gave a lot to the to the museum. And then I thought, oh well, they might as well have my breeding <laughs> group as well, because um, it's it's just. I, I think these animals are so great. They just deserve to be viewed. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always at work and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm rarely at home these days and I'm traveling a lot. And, and the reality is, I think, you know, that they, they do much better in these amazing displays in, in the museum um, than I could, I probably have the, the facilities to provide them now at home. So yeah, I've, I've moved away from it a little bit. I still have some of my um, reptiles though. I've got a couple of mossy geckos and a little rain, uh, rainbow boa and, yeah, still, still love to have a few bits knocking around the house. <laughs> yeah, you always have to have something, something going on at home to come home to. Yeah, it's mostly to to excite my nieces when they come round because I'm I still really vying to be the fun uncle as well. So you know, if <laughs> when my friends' kids come over with them and they're like, "Oh, we want to see the snakes and the geckos," and yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah. You got to have something at home, definitely. It's it's a good feeling, you know, and, and especially to have something unique that you can share with somebody that, you know, most people probably don't have. I, I always, I don't know, I always thought that was cool, but eh, my kids are so used to it, it's not even exciting to them anymore, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're hard at to, to please. Yeah, that just happens as they get older, but I know that, I mean, the UK is kind of obviously very, very small compared to the US, but what's the frog community like in the U, in the UK among hobbyists? Is it popular is it just kind of a small niche inside of greater like reptile and amphibian keeping like what's what's the hobby like it's uh is big it's you know I'm, i mean obviously <laughs> what we think is big is probably nothing you know compared to what the the size of the thing you know the hobby in in the u.s and and in countries like germany i think they've always probably been much larger than we have been in the uk but over recent years i think there's been a there's been a big sort of move into you know really serious um dart frog keeping in the uk so there's there's a number of um sort of suppliers and and um sort of shows now that 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 sort of cater to these uh these hobbyists and and that and that you know the the equipment and the you know the the environments now there's there's a big sort of boom in that really and and it's quite interesting i'm i'm you know i'm friends with a lot of hobbyists and i I grew, you know that was my introduction into um into herpetology was through first of all these animals in my garden but then you know keeping different animals at home and you know now seeing the the evolution of 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 the the hobby is amazing you know to see the the facilities and the the exhibits and the way things are maintained and you know our friend who <laughs> who I mentioned earlier and set up this amazing uh, company he's got like a a WhatsApp group full of frog enthusiasts and there must be 500 of us on this group so i have to keep it muted most of the time or else i'd never get any work done but they're always on there showing pictures and comparing exhibits and you know really pushing each other you know towards sort of collective standards and it's it's great to see um you know and i think a lot of <laughs> you know and, and it's it's always the case i think but as you know the the hobbyists they look and they they think oh you know i'd love to do this as a job and you know, I'd love to get involved, but the sort of the standards now that they keep a lot of these animals in, you know, personal collections is is amazing and 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 surpasses a lot of organisations. You know, especially big general organisations that they can struggle to have that real, you know, dialed in attention to detail that's required with some of these, you know, quite unusual dart frogs. And 
and glass frogs and other species that are quite sensitive. So it's great to see how well they're doing in, in the hobby, though. It's fantastic. Yeah, it does take a lot of commitment. I feel like with the more sensitive species of frogs, I mean, by and large, most dart frogs, we'll say like, uh, you know, Tinctorius and um, Aratus, Leucomillus, and even Pamilio at this point are relatively hardy, but some of the more sensitive species, I just feel like you need a special type of person to be able to handle that and succeed at it. Yeah. It's always, and, and, and this is the way I kind of describe it to the um, to our volunteers when they start, is that the reality is there's some species of, you know, they're bulletproof, <laughs> you know, whether it's Latoria or, or some of the, you know, ro- more robust tree frogs or, or even within the dart frogs like Leucomelius or Aratus and stuff. They're, they're so hardy that they can, they, they forgive you if you make a mistake. That's that's the kind of difference. Whereas you have other animals where I think there's just they they don't forgive. <laughs> if you make a mistake, you'll they'll punish you. They'll 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 go downhill. They won't you know they won't be feeding. So they they really mean that you have to keep yourself on your toes. You have to be you know really serious about the husbandry. And you can't you know cut corners. And it's good because it means that the people who work with them tend to be you know the very best. And it and it precludes you know more casual people. And I think that's what's great about the hobby that a lot of, um, you know, people, they're very honest and they're very sort of, you know, there tends to be, especially in the UK, I presume it's probably a global phenomenon, but we, you know, they're very keen to, to help each other out and, you know, help the new people who are just entering into the hobby kind of get to grips with things. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's brilliant. And, and when, you know, it's not always, you know, oh, this, you'll never be able to work with this, but it's, build yourself up, you know, get these kind of environmental parameters nailed down until you know that you can consistently keep something at this in this kind of environment and then have a look again and into it. So it's not kind of gatekeeping, but it's it's just training people and giving them the sort of knowledge that they need to, to succeed. So, yeah, it's good. Oh, absolutely. What about the frog blog? Uh, years ago, well, <laughs> more than that, but um, like when I started the podcast like three years ago, I found out about the Frog Blog, and I was kind of following it for a while, and then it kind of became inactive, and I see there's another, looks like the last entry was from March of 2023. Uh, what's going on with the Frog Blog? Is that something you guys are still actively doing? And if so, what's what's involved in it? Yeah, so the, the Frog Blog was, I mean, it's been a, it's been a part of the museum collections for 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 a long, long time now. So it was, it was originally Andrew's sort of personal blog, my the, the previous curator, um, and he, it was just a way of him sort of showcasing a lot of the, the the work he was involved in, the species, and then we got guest blogs involved and bloggers involved, and it really kind of grew, you know, from strength to strength. And then in recent years, we just really noticed a big drop off in in the sort of engagement on there. So. The, the museum was very keen to, to try and centralize its, its social media a little bit. Um, and a bit of that was moving away from lots and lots of individual blogs to create something, you know, one kind of museum area where it would talk a little bit about Egyptology or conservation or, you know, archaeology and all the different aspects of the work. But I think we're still in a little bit of a limbo area at the moment. I would be, you know, I'd, I'd love to keep the frog blog going if, if you know, we, we thought the audience was still there. Um, and I think there is because a lot of, you know, people who are really into amphibians, 
they might not be interested in dinosaurs. They might not be interested in some of the other areas that the museum covers. So they, they want to just tune in and, and just get that kind of that feed that's all about, um, you know, frogs. But the reality is that, you know, people are moving on to new, um, you know, new forms of social media, um, TikToks and, um, you know, whatever it might be, these new ones threads or whatever <laughs> um you know there's always some new sort of media out there that people are consuming and i and i think that we're, we're, we're in a little bit of a limbo where we're trying to decide the the best route to go down with that whether it is to to get involved in some of the other social medias a bit more or or to put something onto the museum website it just doesn't seem to be garnering the same level of interest that it did you know back um five six years ago when it was when it was at its pomp. I understand that. Yeah, as technology continues to advance, the way that people are engaged changes, and it just seems like there's going to be generational um, differences and whatnot. Like younger people tend to graduate, uh, excuse me, gravitate towards things like TikTok and Snapchat and whatnot, and older people tend to gravitate towards like Facebook and stuff like that. And there's it's weird. There doesn't really seem to be one specific platform that you can engage everybody on. It seems like you can kind of get you know, maybe half here or half there, maybe there'll be some overlap. And yeah, I, I get it. It's challenging. And obviously you're not going to want to spend too much time on a resource that you're not going to get a tremendous amount of engagement. I wish, I wish podcasting was more, <laughs> was more popular. <laughs> well, I think, you know, you, you, these are the kind of things people are moving towards. So I think, you know, podcasting seems to be exploding, um, you know, but uh, we, we did try a museum podcast, but then that kind of fizzled out a little bit. So <laughs> I don't know, really. We're, we're, we also just recently, um, we're, we're in the middle of recruiting our new communications manager for the museum. So our last communication manager finished uh, earlier this year. So I think that when that comes up, you know, on board, then there'll be a bit more um, direction, hopefully, for us to to move towards. But I would I'd love to keep the blog e- even just as a resource long term, because it's it's a fantastic record of of what we've been doing over the years, you know, and and to have that, you know, there for the public as much as it is for, you know, anyone else is 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 a great resource. So we won't be getting rid of it anytime soon, but we might be changing how it sits within the museum and, and within our other sort of social media things. So yeah, keep keep your eyes peeled. And I'm sure once we do have a, a decision, we'll, we'll, we'll update the blog and, and make sure everyone's aware of it. Yeah, it's definitely a great archival resource. So we're kind of at the end, but I wanted to ask you where you see the vivarium in the next, say, five years, 10 years. What are some of the long-term goals that you're looking to accomplish between now and you know, the near to, the near to distant future? Well, yeah, it's a million dollar question. <laughs> so I would love to see us more involved in, in some conservation projects, you know, in the UK, but as well as, as in Costa Rica and Panama, these parts of the world, because I think that what we've done with the, the Asalopas project, although it's been a bit um, stop and start, I think is, is really exciting um, and we've had some really cool sort of proposals that have come our way recently you know and this idea about moving away from this you know historical kind of colonial attitude to collections and conservation where we can actually have programs where it's a you know a, 
a collaboration between organizations in the UK, in, you know, Costa Rica or Panama. And it's just a really, you know, these things are done on an equal footing where we are able to, you know, develop really, you know, holistic projects where communities are involved, indigenous perspectives are taken into account, rights and things like this that that have historically been overlooked, um, ways that we can get, um, you know, projects involved with our sort of local community in Manchester and then connecting communities. So, you know, the, the, the museum's mission statement is to uh, build understandings between cultures and a more sustainable world. And I think the work that the Vivarium's doing is, you know, that's completely central to that mission of the museum. And I think if we can be more ambitious about the sort of number of projects that we have, the sort of scale of the outreach that we do, I think we can do some really exciting things. And, you know, we've we've got a project on the on the horizon in Costa Rica, which I'm really excited about. So I won't give any spoilers away just yet, but that should be really exciting. Um, we're looking forward to hopefully getting more involved in some conservation work with the Amphibian Foundation, um, who are good friends of yours, I believe, Dan. Um, so we're looking forward to working with um, with Mark and Crystal at, um, at the Amphibian Foundation. And we're also hoping to do some, some more exciting work in the UK. So we're currently involved in a glowworm conservation project, which has just got started at the museum. And this is working with uh, one of the two native species of glowworm, which is a type of firefly that we have in the UK. Uh, and this is a species that's completely disappeared from the vast majority of the British Isles. So there's only a handful of sites now where you can find, you know, breeding viable populations. And a lot of that's due to sort of climate change or uh, habitat destruction or, you know, people like pollution people putting lampposts all over their habitat so one of the things that we're doing at the moment is is doing a, a head starting project we're breeding them in captivity and we're going to be doing a long-term monitoring of a, of, a, of a a reintroduced population and hopefully that will lead to more and more of these populations around the uk and that's really exciting because a lot of our sort of native um reptiles and amphibians are, are quite secure there's a bit of conservation with with some of our reptiles, um, but but really, what we can do in the UK is perhaps more entomologically focused. We can do some work with those, which you know we have the facilities, we have the staff, and we can do something quite exciting in in the in the UK, which will hopefully give our uh, visitors a, a sort of appreciation of conservation on a very local scale, as well as you know this more global view that we have, um, and then sort of. Finally, is probably more of a, a research focus as well. So I mentioned earlier that my PhD work that I'm doing at the moment, so this is looking at environmental DNA metabarcoding, which is a, a molecular approach to ecology. So it's going out and collecting environmental samples. So I focus primarily on water samples, collecting them from these remote sort of areas like the highlands of Costa Rica, where, you know, there used to be X number of species that have vanished. So some of the other species of Atalopus or Crowgaster and some of these really beautiful but unusual and very rare frogs. And then we're using these um, eDNA metabarcoding. So we're, we're extracting the DNA from these water samples. We're amplifying it 
in the laboratory and then we're sequencing it and we're getting the full picture of all the diversity that's within these sites. So I think that is something that I'm really excited about, its conservation value, because the big problem we have in a lot of these areas of Central America and, and elsewhere around the world where, you know, you have a large amounts of diversity within amphibians, and you also have a lot of very rare and endangered species. I think what we can do with these sort of non-invasive techniques is, is develop the, the data sets that we require. So we don't have good data on distribution. We don't have good data on populations. But by having these sort of novel techniques that we can pair with more traditional surveying, we could do some really exciting uh, work with, with these animals, detecting where they're present, detecting, you know, and, and learning more about the population dynamics. And then hopefully, you know, having more accurate and more effective conservation interventions moving forward. So, yeah, I'm, re I'm really excited about the, you know, the, the coming years at the vivarium. You know, I think the, you know, the, the collection is very strong. It's in a really good position. I think we're, we're getting more and more sort of, um, you know, well-known within, you know, the, the sort of conservation circles. Um, and, and hopefully we're, we're maximizing the, the value of these, you know, amazing animals within our care. You know, we can really promote them. We can promote their conservation. We can do some really fascinating and important research. But we can also educate, you know, we can teach and inspire the next generation of herpetologists, you know, the next groups of kids that are obsessed with the frogs in the garden or watching David Attenborough documentaries the same way I was and coming into the museum and getting inspired about how they can help protect, you know, biodiversity in the natural world. So, yeah, it's uh, an exciting place and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly privileged to work there and, and hopefully we'll you know, keep this work going for the next 60 years um, or, and beyond. So, yeah, really exciting times. Well, it definitely looks like a lot to, uh, lot to look forward to. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a lot of work, you know, and there's, there's never a dull day and it keeps, keeps us all busy, but it's the most rewarding work I could ever, you know, hope for. So, yeah, yeah. very lucky. It's like before when I asked you about an average day. I mean, I, I realized there is no such thing as an average day, especially when you're dealing with um, this type this type of situation. But yeah, it's encouraging. It, it's it's nice to see that we're at a point where things are going to move forward in a way that's just going to be more more holistic. You know, you have more people are involved. There's better communication now than there ever was in the past. With the internet, you can exchange information within a matter of seconds, and I feel like. It's um, it, it's always encouraging to hear about n new technology being used for good things and to have a, a positive and productive outcome. So that's 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 great. I will have to touch base again at some point and uh, see how all that pans out. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And like I say, you know, it's, I don't want to give anything away too soon, but um, yeah, there's some really exciting developments on the horizon. Yeah, I definitely want to hear about it when you when you can share. <laughs> definitely so matt for anybody who wants to learn more about the vivarium or um i know there's a website but maybe for anybody who's in the uk who might be interested in visiting how, how would anybody find out about the vivarium and some of the work that you're involved in if they wanted to find out more yeah so uh you can come and visit us so we're free to the public and we're open six days a week tuesday through to saturday um we're open 10 till 5 p.m and we have 
you know, all these amazing collections. It's right in the center of Manchester. So it's really easy to find us just off Oxford Road, which is the main thoroughfare through the center of the university and really easily accessible. Um, and then if you're from further afield and you want to learn about us from, um, you know, we have our websites, we have Manchester Museum. If you type that into Google, you'll find all of our sort of information on there. If you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get, uh, you can email us on, on vivarium at manchester.ac.uk and that'll come through to our sort of inbox. If you've got any questions, then, then do drop us a line. Or you can also have a look at all of our archival um, information on the Frog Blog, which is Frog Blog Manchester. Uh, I think it's at WordPress, but if you Google that, you'll you'll find it there. And there's a few other social channels, but they're probably a little bit out of date at the moment. But yeah, we'd be delighted to hear from you know any of your listeners, and and if there's anything we can you know provide, we're always offering advice and you know supporting people who get in touch about their husbandry or or inquiries about species or the conservation work and and if and if you've even more inspired and you want to support our conservation work then you can sponsor our, one of our frogs so we have a sponsor frog program which is available through the manchester museum shop so if you google that that'll take you through to a, a page where you can choose your donation amount from sort of 10 pounds up to 50 pounds and you know we really appreciate that work and all that money goes directly to our partners out in panama to support the amazing work they're doing to support the harlequin frogs in the wild um but yeah we'd be really great uh, really grateful for that and and any support from from the public or any inquiries we can help with we're always delighted to hear from from fellow frog enthusiasts and i'm always excited to hear people in the uk and across the uh, across the other side of atlantic it's uh, it's always fun to hear about uh, different perspectives from other parts of the globe all right, everyone, I want to thank Matt so much uh, for taking the time. I know it's getting really late where he is, but, um, you know, again, I love conversations like this. I love getting a chance to talk to people in different parts of the world. And having Matt talk to us about the Manchester Vivarium was absolutely amazing. It's, it's been a place that's been on my radar for a long time, and I'm really glad that we got to connect and cover all this ground. And I hope you guys enjoyed it and uh, look forward to more content like this coming up. I've got some, I, I always say, as always, I've got some great people, but I've got some really really amazing people that i've been trying to get uh, trying to get hold of for some time and they're coming up so make sure you stay tuned and uh, other than that you know again hope you guys enjoyed it catch up with you again next time and i am out of here <laughs>